and welcome to a special broadcast, Ceasefire Now, where we will be discussing the ongoing war in Palestine, its historical roots, and what is being done to end it. I'm your host, Russell Webster, a member of the newly formed Inland Northwest Coalition for the Liberation of Palestine out of Spokane, Washington. I was previously active during the Occupy and Black Lives Matter movements and have a master's degree in philosophy. My guests today are two professors from Eastern Washington University, Ed Burns, professor at the Social School of Social Work, and Sean Chabot, professor in the Department of Sociology. Today is November 18th, 2023. We're discussing the urgent need for a ceasefire now in Palestine. As of today, 1,200 Israelis and over 12,000 Palestinians have been killed in the present war on Gaza. Israel has blocked crucial resources from entering Gaza. Millions of Palestinians have no access to water, food, electricity, or health care. Meanwhile, winter is setting in. While the majority of the world, including Americans, are calling for a ceasefire, the United States and Israel are resistant and becoming increasingly isolated. Now, first I'm gonna to turn to Ed, who has uh, gathered statistics on the ongoing crisis. Ed, wh where are your data about deaths and injuries coming from? Well, Russell, my data come from the United Nations World Health Organization health cluster on the occupied Palestinian territory. And how many residents of Gaza have been killed by Israeli defense forces since okay. October 7th? Okay. And my data analysis comes from data that were current as of Wednesday of this week. And on that day, there were 11,078. And what percent of the population of the Gaza Strip does the number of deaths represent? It's one half of 1% of the population, and when you think about 38 days, that's a large proportion to lose in that amount of time. Uh -huh. How many children in Gaza have been killed by Israeli defense forces? 4,506. And what percent of people have been killed in Gaza by Israeli uh, defense forces are children? Well, 41% of Gazans killed by the Israeli defense forces were children. And how many residents of Gaza have been injured by Israeli Defense Forces since October 7th? The number of Gazan civilians who have been injured by the Israeli Defense Forces is 27,490. And what percentage of the population of Gaza Strip does this number of injuries represent? That's 1.2% of the Gaza population that has been injured in the last 38 days. Uh, to give you a little context, it's holiday time. Imagine people are sitting around with 10 family members. Mm. at least one of them would have been injured in military action by the Israeli Defense Forces. What percent of the people who have been injured in Gaza by Israeli Defense Forces are children? 9,137 children have been injured by the Israeli Defense Forces. And for context, if the same proportion of the U.S. population were killed, what would the number of people killed be? If the same percentage of United States, citizens, uh, United States residents were killed in those 38 days, it would be 1,670,352. Well, what would the number of children be? That would be 679,419 children killed in the U.S. in 38 days. Similarly, if the same proportion of the U.S. population were injured, 
what would the number of people injured be? That would be 4,144,970 people injured in the U.S. in 38 days. What would the number of children injured be? That would be 1,377,686 children injured in the U.S. in 38 days. Now let's discuss the displacement of people living in the Gaza Strip caused by the Israeli Defense Forces. Where are your data about displacements coming from? From the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East. How many people who have been displaced by the Israeli Defense Forces have been sheltering in the UN Relief and Works Agency shelters? That is 795,500. And this is only displaced Palestinians and Gaza residents that are at the UN shelters, so it's an undercount. Well, what percent of the population of the Gaza Strip does this number of displaced people represent? 36% of the Gaza population has been displaced in the last 38 days. For context, if the same proportion of the U.S. population were displaced, what would the number of people be displaced be? That would be 119,946,284 people displaced in the United States in 38 days. How many UN Relief Works Agency shelters are serving the displaced people in Gaza? There are 154 shelters operated by that organization, which is one shelter for every 5,166 refugees. And how many of these UN Relief and Works Agency shelters have been damaged by Israeli Defense Forces? 64 United Nations shelters have been damaged by the Israeli Defense Forces. And how many displaced people have been killed in these UN Relief Works Agency shelters by Israeli Defense Forces? 71 refugees have been killed while residing in United Nations shelters by the Israeli Defense Forces. How many displaced people have been injured in these UN Relief and Works Agency shelters by Israeli Defense Forces? 563 of these refugees have been injured. How many UN Relief and Works Agency shelter staff have been killed by Israeli Defense Forces? 102 sheltered staff have been killed as of last Wednesday. Okay, that's a lot of staggering numbers. Let's let's uh, conclude with some facts about Israeli Defense Force attacks on healthcare infrastructure and killings of healthcare providers. Now, where are your data about healthcare infrastructure coming from? That's also coming from the United Nations World Health Organization Occupied Palestinian Territory Health Cluster. And how many attacks have the Israeli Defense Forces made against the health care infrastructure in Gaza? If you look at all infrastructure, that's hospitals, ambulances, and clinics, 152 attacks on health care infrastructure have been made by the Israeli Defense Forces. What do we know about what infrastructure was attacked? 38 ambulances have been attacked, and the other 114 attacks were against clinics and hospitals. How many healthcare workers in Gaza have been killed by Israeli Defense Forces? In the last 38 days, the Israeli Defense Forces have killed 198 healthcare workers in Gaza. What do we know about these health case care workers who were killed? The healthcare workers killed included 31 doctors, 68 nurses, 20 paramedics, 26 pharmacists, 14 lab staff, and another 39 who were other healthcare service providers. 
Before the blockade and military attacks begin on October 7th, how many at least partially functioning hospitals were there in the Gaza Strip? 34. How many at least partially functioning hospitals are there now in the Gaza Strip? There are now nine partially functioning hospitals remaining in all of the Gaza Strip. What percent of reduction in at least partially functioning hospitals in the Gaza Strip as a result of the blockade and attacks by Israel Defense Forces? The number of functioning hospitals in Gaza has been reduced by 74%. Well, based on this data, Ed, we have reviewed, what do you conclude about the facts on the ground in Gaza Strip? The most apparent conclusion that I or anybody familiar with data could arrive at is that this evidence showing the scope and the scale of the attacks by the Israeli Defense Forces in Gaza demonstrates that they are indiscriminate rather than precise in nature. That's troubling. Very. Well, with this data and these facts, we're going to turn now to um, Sean for some more uh, context in this. Uh, Sean has been familiar with uh, the question of Palestine and the occupations uh, for quite some time now. Sean, uh, thank you for talking with me today. Uh, I'm going to start with a, a, a set of questions, and we'll, we'll just go back and forth from there. Why does the U.S. government condone Israel's illegal occupation and settlements? Uh, thank you, Russell. Um, before I answer that question, which I think is a really important question, especially for our coalition, right, for uh, liberation of Palestine, um, I actually want to also bring in some good news as well, right? Great. Um, so I think... Obviously, the good news is not coming from Palestine, but I think one aspect that is important for our coalition is that while many uh, uh, politicians are still against the ceasefire, um, you know, the, the latest polls show that 68% of the American public is now in favor of a ceasefire. And so I think our coalition can play a very important role in understanding what that means, uh, kind of the popularity among the people and the resistance among uh, politicians. And also we can, we can build on that, right, for resisting uh, and, and trying to uh, uh, agitate against um, what's happening uh, in, in Gaza particularly. So if I now look more specifically at your, your question, um, I think this shows that the U.S. government has um, has basically condoned what's happening in Israel from the beginning, right? Actually, it was President Truman who was the first one to uh, 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 to recognize Israel as a nation state, right? And this was quite uh, exceptional uh, at the time. But President Joe Biden is and has historically been more pro-Zionist and pro-Israel uh, than anybody, right? So there's clearly a pattern. Uh, over time, whether it's a Democratic uh, presidency or uh, Demo uh, Democrats in power or Republicans. This has been a, a continuing uh, pattern. Um, so I think one thing about the occupation that's uh, very, very important is um, that in many ways it's, it's not unlike uh, American history, right? So uh, the Israelis, the Zionist people, their slogan was, um, you know, uh, a land without a people for a people without a land. 
And when many Americans, you know, American settlers came to, you know, what indigenous called Turtle Island, they also uh, felt that this was empty land that we could, we could settle. So that's, I think, another kind of a historical uh, connection. Um, and also Israel has, um, from the beginning, has been supported by empire, right? So we had the British Empire uh, that, in a way, encouraged um, uh, Israel from the beginning, right? There's a famous letter by a, a British, his name is Balfour, and that letter, in a way, allowed people to um, in Israel to settle to settle there, um, but the U.S.-led empire um, has been kind of Israel's main supporter ever since, both financially, politically, and also in many ways culturally. So I think those are all important reasons why the U.S. Um, government condones uh, Israel's illegal occupation and settlements, and of course also their political interest in terms of. Uh, you know, dominating not only politically but also economically uh, the Middle East, especially with with oil and and other resources. So there there are many different reasons why the U.S. is condoning and why it's hard for um, you know politicians across the political spectrum to really directly criticize uh, what Israel is doing. So you mentioned that it was originally a. British mandate or a uh, a colonialism uh, form that had been handed off to the United States. Can you speak more to that? Uh, I've heard this referred to by recent academics as a sort of last vestige of 20th century and 19th century Western colonialism. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that assessment? Is that sort of what we're seeing here is a... Uh, an old form of colonialism that has, with updated technology and a 21st century? Yeah, actually this is a specific example of colonialism known as settler colonialism, right? So with colonialism, you would often uh, have uh, a minority, like for instance, the British in India, the British were always in the minority and they basically wanted to exploit the resources and, and the labor in India. But what's different about a settler colonialism is that it's uh, not only about uh, economic benefits, uh, but also about replacing the population, replacing the native population. So really settler colonialism is based on elimination, right? And if you look at the original uh, documents of Zionism all the way back to 1897, it's very clear that this is a, a settler colonial project, right? Uh, for all the founders of, of, Zi of Zionism. Um, and so that Zionism has continued to be kind of the main ideology uh, that's underlying uh, Israeli policy and Israeli um, relationship to Palestine uh, from the beginning, and that continues. And so even though on the one hand we've had a more, you could say, a, a slower form of colonialism, um, which actually even made a lot of Israeli politicians kind of assume that um, they kind of settled that kind of colonialism, that Palestine didn't really exist anymore. Um, it was exactly at that point that, uh, you know, uh, that, that people in Gaza and throughout Palestine uh, wanted to show that they still, that they still exist and that, um, that, that their struggle for freedom uh, continues. Well, 
That leads me to the next question I was going to ask you. Uh, I've heard the terms ethnic cleansing uh, in the mainstream media. I've heard the terms genocide. And uh, my question is, why does the U.S. government refuse to end Israel's ethnic cleansing and displacement? Okay, I think one of the main, um, the main reasons for that is the, the idea that Israel uh, is defending itself and has a right to defend itself. Um, and this is part of, uh, you could call it discursive strategy that is really distracting from what's actually really happening on the ground as what uh, Ed was able to show us, right? So it's really important not to get too wrapped up into uh, kind of the propaganda that, that um, often um, is, is portrayed in the media, but to really look at it more closely. So, um, so really, Israel is an occupying force, in particularly uh, in Gaza. So once you're an occupying force, that means that the, the concept of self-defense just does not apply, mm. right? You're actually uh, illegally occupying, and then once you occupy, uh, then uh, any kind of a resistance from the colonized population, in this case, Palestinians in Gaza, then uh, for the occupier, if they can say that this is self-defense, then the whole idea of self-defense uh, becomes meaningless, right? Because that would mean I could occupy any territory. As soon as the people in that territory that resist me, resist me, then I say, well, I have to annihilate them to defend myself, but it's their territory, not my territory. So the idea of self-defense um, does not really apply in this case, but if you look at almost anything that um, US proponents of Israel say, self-defense will almost always come up, and obviously if you hear uh, you know, Israeli sources talk about this, self-defense also always comes up. So it's for that reason, this, this idea of self-defense makes it so Israel doesn't have to justify or even discuss the whole idea of ethnic cleansing, which has been there from the first day, which, you know, in 1948, it's called the Nakba, what Palestinians see as the big uh, catastrophe. And we might think that's just an historical event, but since this is settler colonialism, it's actually a structure. It's a structure that has continued since 1948. And in many ways, what's happening now is the most extreme form, and in many ways it, it appears that there's not only indiscriminate bombing, but that Israel wants to now finally achieve kind of the Zionist dream that it has had from the beginning. So, so why, why does the government continue to sell bombs to Israel uh, in enabling this, this genocide that seems to be unfolding right in front of our eyes on the world stage? What, what does the U.S. have to gain from, from continuing to, to sell bombs? Uh, I think I, I heard it was uh, $4 million a year that we, uh, that we fund Israel's uh, militarism. Uh, can you speak to that, please? Um, yeah, I mean, I think for obviously there are many economic reasons for doing this, but kind of what I mentioned earlier, that relationship between the U.S. and Israel is very important. And so for Israel to have a strong army is crucial not only to its future, um, but also to the American empire, right? And so I think that's, that's more of the political background of why 
um, why the, the, the military aid has been so high. Um, and I think it was supposed to be around $4 billion for this year. But now with what's happening in Gaza, uh, President Biden wants at least $14 billion uh, to go there. And so, and, and the bombing that has happened there has never happened at this rate before, right? So there are many wa different ways to imagine this. And, and, you know, the numbers that Ed brought up uh, are, are really crucial for this. Uh, but basically, they, they added up the tons of explosive power. It's the equivalent to two nuclear bombs, right? Wow. And if you want to make that connection, that's how actually President Truman ended World War II is with a bomb on Hiroshima, actually on my birthday, mm -hmm. and then a bomb on, on Nagasaki. So just to give you an image of what, what that involves. Um, and so, so the U.S. government... It, it can't really pull back because that would kind of undermine its policy all the way from 1948. So this, this bombardment that's going on, and it's been going on for decades now, of a people who don't have a military of their own, they don't have an uh, air force, they don't have uh, a, a fraction of what uh, the Israeli uh, forces have. There, there must be some other reason other than uh, the, the constant uh, uh, ethnic cleansing campaign that Israel is, is engaging in. Mm -hmm. I'm noticing uh, more activity throughout the Middle East. Uh, I've seen reports of warring in Syria with the United States now and in Iraq. And uh, I thought those things were behind us. Is this, are these things all connected in some way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think they're definitely connected. Um, and this is not my field of expertise. And I really wish my good friend, Majid Sharifi, who was supposed to be here, but through health reasons is, is in the hospital and couldn't be here. Uh, but definitely, you know, this is all connected. So for instance, if we take the 1967 war, right, which is when the occupation of Gaza actually uh, started, that was with, you know, other Arab countries in, in the area. And this is also, I think in many ways, Israel was partially at least surprised by its own victory. And that victory in many ways gave it the confidence to uh, kind of increase its military and political uh, domination and also to expand its territory, continue its, its ethnic cleansing. Uh, but clearly, because of that kind of colonial uh, activity and, and those colonial uh, invasions and, and, and attacks, uh, clearly the resistance to that has also become much stronger, right? Um, and again, I'm no, no expert on this, but Hezbollah is way stronger than it was, uh, you know, at the time or earlier. Um, and even Hamas, which, um, you know, just to get a sense of Hamas, I know Hamas is often used as the big enemy that's going to, um, you know, basically take over Israel. Hamas has about 30,000 uh, military, uh, its, its military forces are uh, add, add up to about 30,000, while Israel has a force that can be up to about 700,000. So the proportions are not even close to each other. But even Hamas has been growing and growing, uh, partially because of what's happening with Israel. And so clearly, the Arab world, in many ways, uh, is supporting um, uh, the Palestinians, right? 
uh, who are obviously, you know, often also seen as Arab, Arab uh, people. Um, but again, whatever happens, for instance, with Hezbollah, with, with those attacks that have been happening by Israel, they have continued throughout this whole war. Um, it could easily blow up and spread from there, especially if, um, you know, let's say Israel attacks Iran or some other country that's also involved. So this is a very dangerous situation. And um, clearly already the, the war between Russia and Ukraine was a very dangerous situation, and that's continuing. Uh, now this could be another kind of a situation where a war really starts, starts spreading um, through major parts of, of the world. It seems to be escalating quickly, and I can't think of a better reason for a ceasefire now. Uh, thank you both for, for this. We have to take a short break. Uh, Ed, thank you so much for speaking with us. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity to do so. And we're going to return after the break with more conversation between uh, myself and Sean. Thank you. I'm exhausted. Last night I couldn't sleep, but when I did, I could hear bombs in my dreams. Nightmare situation. How could they be so evil? Making mortars out of children and innocent people. We expect the bombs, not knowing where next. Huddle in the corner of my room, trying to protect my little brother. As the building shakes like it's possessed, but nothing stronger than the will of the oppressed. I bomb back with my lyrics and rhymes. Living the times, trying to break the Palestinian minds. What's hiding in the clouds hanging over my head? My dad risks his life outside to buy bread the fourth war in my 12th year at this stage i'm numb though i haven't feel scared there's nothing i can do in this case to stay safe i'm brave even though this house could be in my grave i want freedom for the population two million prisoners living in this location shouting at the wall but nothing is ever changing that's life under an occupation i want freedom for the population two million prisoners living in this location shouting at the wall but nothing is ever changing that's life under an occupation mothers mourn fighting with grief white sheets cover bodies that lie on the streets buildings turn to ash but my mind is made of steel so it doesn't take much for me to heal won't lose the to live or lose our minds My auntie lost her home So she lost her life But she is still alive But traumatized By the bombs that flew in And dropped that night My sister couldn't sleep Tried to stop her cries I said it was fireworks I was telling her lies Where's the compassion? This is heartless It's like they want us all Living in darkness Cutting off water and electricity For hours They're knocking towers But that's not knocking The power that I have in my pen When I'm writing I'm unstoppable the microphone is the only escape possible Cause that's the way that I can speak my mind I wonder how does the fighter pilot sleep at night Knowing he can turn the city upside down All of a sudden slaughtering families With the push of a button I want freedom for the population Two million prisoners living in this location Shouting at the wall but nothing is ever changing That's life under an occupation I want freedom for the population Two million prisoners living in this location Shouting at the wall, but nothing is ever changing. That's life under an occupation. Hello, and welcome back to the special broadcast, Ceasefire Now, where we're discussing the ongoing war in Palestine, its historical roots, and what is being done to end it. I'm your host, Russell Webster. 
a member of the newly formed Inland Northwest Coalition for the Liberation of Palestine out of Spokane, Washington. I'm speaking today with Sean Chabot, professor in the Department of Sociology at Eastern Washington University, and we've been discussing the urgent need for a ceasefire now in Palestine. Today's November 18th, 2023, and as of today, 1,200 people have been killed in Israel, and over 12,000 Palestinians have been killed in the present war on Gaza. Now, Sean, I've heard in uh, media often comparisons made between uh, the occupation in Israel and uh, apartheid South Africa. Uh, can you please speak to uh, that connection and, and why so many uh, people are comparing uh, the occupations in Israel to uh, South African apartheid. Okay, yeah, that's a very that's a very important question, and we can learn a lot from that comparison. Although it's always really important to recognize that every context, every history is also significantly different, right? So we don't want to equate them uh, too much. Um, but so briefly in in South Africa, uh, and and what's interesting actually. There's an interesting connection with the year 1948. Hmm. Um, so the 1948 was the year that the UN, first of all, signed, uh, accepted the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, right? which I find ironic because that same year, 1948, is when um, you know, the, the, the Nationalist Party in South Africa um, you know, officially made apartheid legal in South Africa. And of course, 1948 is also when the Nakba happened, when the catastrophe happened. So, which is when kind of um, you know Israeli um, um, settler colonialism, but then also apartheid in many ways emerged. So, there's there's an interesting connection there already. Uh, but if we look at if we look at apartheid, what that basically entailed is that um, there was a separation between the different ethnicities, right? So you had uh, different parts of um, of territory, and of course, the white you know the white population, um, often coming from British and Dutch um, descent, uh, they obviously had the best territories. Uh, black people got often got the worst um, you know territories and had mm -hmm. to work often worked for uh, white businesses and white families, uh, and then you also had colored um, you know um, areas for the for the colored people there. And a lot of the things that we see now in Palestine, uh, things like checkpoints, things like having to bring a pass wherever you go, um, and, and all kinds of other restrictions of the, just their everyday life were, were also present there, right? And so really almost every institution, under apartheid, almost every institution was controlled by uh, the apartheid regime. Um, and in Israel, you can, you can see that as well, right? Um, although officially... Uh, for instance, Palestinians living in Israel are supposed to have rights in practice when they, when they have to go to court, for instance. Um, it's really the, the Jewish interpretation and the Jewish you know, uh, judges who get to make the decisions. Um, so that, that, that totalizing system of apartheid, um, has, has we, can, we can see the parallels there. But I think what's another really important comparison is to see how South Africans responded to that, and then also how Palestinian people responded to that. 
Because even though apartheid is an extremely oppressive regime, um, there's always been resistance. Just like under slavery in the U.S., there's always been resistance, right? And so it's really important for us, uh, especially when we, when we see in the media uh, about the bombings and about people getting killed, about the injuries, about the desperation, people uh, fleeing, becoming refugees. It's very important to recognize that the Palestinians have always resisted and are really driven by an urge for freedom, like anybody under any kind of occupation, any kind of an oppression. Um, so in South Africa, the way that worked is initially a lot of the, the resistance was, was uh, nonviolent, right? Actually, they were relying on Gandhi, right, in many ways. And Gandhi, of course, lived in South Africa for many years. Mm. That's in a way where he uh, became a nonviolent uh, resistor. Um, but then once it turned out that that, was, uh, that didn't have the effects that they wanted and apartheid continued, um, there was, uh, you know, we had the, the ANC, the African National Congress, and that was one of the groups that started engaging in armed struggle, right? So they had mostly bombing on, on infrastructure. Um, and, of course, it, it was at this time that the U.S. called the ANC a, a terrorist organization, and Mandela was on the list of, of terrorists, right? And so this was, this was a global thing. Um, so in Palestine, we see very interesting similarities where um, obviously Palestinians have always resisted Nakba, um, although in the, in the beginning it was more at a grassroots level, maybe not quite as organized. Um, in many ways, the first big event that happened that most people uh, are aware of is it's what's called the first intifada, right, where people really almost uh, spontaneously but also in a very organized way um, rose up and started struggling for freedom and, um, you know, against, against the different forms of uh, occupation. Um, and this was also when Hamas actually first emerged. And Hamas initially was mostly a charity organization, mostly focusing on, on social services. Um, and, um, but then when we had a peace accord, when there were peace um, meetings to, to try to sign a peace accord uh, in Oslo, in many ways, many people around the world, including many um, uh, Palestinian intellectuals, one of them uh, was Edward Said, were very excited about this. They thought this could actually be a breakthrough and Palestine might finally be free. But when it turned out that the promises that were made by Israel, that they had no intention of meeting those, those promises, so this idea of a two-state solution, that that was just uh, a sham, uh, Hamas became more prominent because they never were willing to, to collaborate uh, with anything less than full liberation, hmm. right? And so that's when pretty soon after that, they, they started emphasizing more the armed struggle uh, part of their organization. And, uh, you know, when I was young, I remember hearing about the suicide bombings, right? And so that's where Hamas was directly involved. Um, but again, this was not the only strategy, right? Nonviolent resistance has also been prominent in Palestine throughout these years, right? And so one of the more recent ones that I think is really important was the Great March of Return, where the people in Gaza, as, as people may know, many of them, 80% of them are refugees from that 1948 catastrophe, 1948 Nakba. So what's very frustrating for them 
is to basically see, they can almost see the territories where they used to live. If they go to the, to the, to the wall, basically, or, or the, the fences, they can see their territory. And so they, they decided to have a symbolic um, event where people from all walks of life, not just activists, but grandmothers, kids, all ages, would basically walk towards the, the, the separation wall or fence, uh, which were obviously heavily uh, secured with, with uh, Israeli mm. forces, just to kind of um, show that they hadn't forgotten about the promise of the right of return. But what happened then is that the Israelis very deliberately started shooting at them and started shooting especially at people's legs. And so you had many thousands of injured people, um, especially younger people who were deliberately injured. And so if you look at, you know, if you go to Palestinian territories now, you see a lot of amputated teenagers or, or men in their, mm. uh, and women in their 20s. Um, so in Israel would sometimes even purposely shoot at younger children uh, or older um, grandmothers in their wheelchair, basically again arguing that if you know that this symbolic act was basically organized by Hamas, which had actually supported it but was not the organizer, and that this was just another way to um, to, to kind of fight Israel. So that, again, they had a right of, of self-defense. So it was really after that nonviolent campaign uh, failed to have any kind of an impact, that's again when, you know, what we see happening now, that's kind of the background for that, right? And so I think, yeah, so it's important to see the many parallels between South Africa and Palestine, uh, but also to be aware of the differences uh, and we can learn from what what worked well in South Africa, but also learn from from its flaws. Well, speaking to that, it, by what you're saying, the liberation struggle is happening uh, in a multi-pronged fashion and from different uh, vantage points. How are how is nonviolent resistance taking shape, and how is it differing from ways in South Africa uh, in terms of nonviolent resistance. I've heard the term in, in the mainstream often, uh, BDS. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to be something that has, uh, a movement that has taken shape over, over the last uh, few decades and gaining momentum. But it seems to have stark differences between uh, the, the boycott and peaceful protest movements that occurred during the South African uh, liberation struggle. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to why the nonviolent struggle for Palestine seems to be impeded in ways that other struggles in the past haven't, and how the United States and uh, Israel are reacting to that. Okay, yeah, definitely. The, the boycott, you know, the BDS stands for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. Hmm. And the BDS uh, was founded, um, I think it was around 2005, and it really uh, relied heavily on the example of how it went in South Africa. So in South, you know, with South Africa, you had many boycott campaigns around the world. You had, for instance, also free Nelson Mandela campaigns. Mm. People might still remember. And also what was really important is that a lot of college students in the U.S. Uh, did divestment campaigns 
They actually also built like fake shanty towns on campus. So there was a huge, um, what would be the word, um, a huge wave of protests in the U.S. in many of the the, the countries that shape that shape world uh, public opinion. And in the end, I think that made it impossible for the apartheid regime to maintain its legitimacy. And so even though the U.S. kept investing in South Africa and allowed its corporations to be there uh, under Reagan, for instance, eventually even they had to pull out their, their major corporations from South Africa. And that's when kind of the economic cost of um, you know, losing the support for apartheid became too heavy for the apartheid regime in um, South Africa to continue. So in many ways, the BDS is trying to do something similar, right? It's trying to uh, use boycotting, um, um, for instance, of, of, um, of academics or boycotting uh, of different products or different corporations. Um, and also divesting is something that college students can often do when on their campus they know you know, uh, university administrations, you know, invest heavily in all kinds of things, including in things that involve uh, Israeli companies, especially Israeli military industries. Mm. And so that's usually what those um, divestment campaigns are targeting. Um, and of course, sanctioning, sanctions are also important, although I think the BDS, unlike in South Africa, doesn't have, at least as of yet, very much a governmental power uh, backing up those kinds of sanctions, but at least symbolically they can they can sanction things, right? Mm. Um, and so that, you know, BDS has become one of the more prominent and well-organized and sustained nonviolent efforts to not directly attack Israel, but to kind of remove its legitimacy, which as we have seen is really important because if, if Israel no longer has the support of the U.S., if Israel can no longer uh, control how the media images, right, how the media sees what's happening as, as, uh, in Israel, then that will really undermine what it's doing now in Gaza. So that's a really crucial part of Israel's attempt to maintain uh, its, its, um, its regime, its, its domination uh, in in Palestine, so again, uh, the BDS is nowhere near uh, where kind of the boycott campaign um, was with South Africa in the late '80s, but in many ways that's one of the more um, the more threatening one, hmm. partially because it's nonviolent to Israel and to many of the allies uh, of Israel, and I think even in the U.S. you can see how uh, governments and, and governors especially, but also local governments, often led by uh, Republican uh, leaders, but, but not always, they're, they're threatened by, by that. And so now, even though it's totally nonviolent, uh, there are many anti-BDS laws, and there are many ways that if you're for BDS, then you must be uh, anti-Israel and therefore anti-Semitic, right? So this is, mm -hmm. again, part of a larger... Um, way to of, of Israeli of Jewish um, uh, Zionist Jewish and then also uh, conservative Americans particularly uh, to to kind of control that to avoid that threat from undermining their uh, what they're trying to do. Hmm. 
So if I'm to... I'm, I understand boycotting as being a nonviolent measure that uh, you're, you're just simply choosing not to uh, perhaps buy from a company uh, or, or divest from a company, uh, yet it's being outlawed, you said. Can, mm-hmm. How is that so? You're, can you speak more to the, the, the forces and the impediments behind uh, boycott divestment and what are some of the forces and, uh, behind uh, the silencing and the repression uh, in, in terms of even laws that are being created? Can you, can you explain that more? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a big and complicated question, but I think, I think what's happening with BDS is part of a larger pattern, especially if you look in the U.S., right? Uh, you were part of the Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. campaigns and events, and you, you might remember... Uh, they were being called, maybe you know, the, the, maybe you remember the term more quick. I think it was black identity extremist, if mm. I remember mm-hmm. the term. Right? Yeah. So it's kind of, actually my friend Majid calls that uh, an example of a language of violence, right? Mm. By, by giving uh, certain, you know, members of certain groups a name, uh, you can, you know, you can uh, portray them as a threat and then you can repress them much more easily. If you have hundreds of thousands of people on the streets, right, that can shift the legitimacy of whatever the government is. And so they're really trying to prevent that mm-hmm. by, um, you know, by repressing that before it can emerge. Uh, so I think what's happening with BDS is another example of that. On the one hand, in terms of material resources or in terms of, for instance, elections, it doesn't have that much direct power. But it, it does have a lot of power over uh, kind of how we perceive what's happening and especially over public opinion. And also it, it, it does a very good job of involving especially youth who want something that they can do to mm-hmm. do something about the issue. And BDS gives them very concrete uh, actions. It has a very good website. There are many ways that you can participate and it's also very good at having alliances with many different groups. So, for instance, Jewish Voice for Peace is one of the main, um, main organization that works very closely with BDS. So if I'm an anti-Zionist Jewish person, and there are a lot, there are a lot of them in our country, mm-hmm. especially among the youth, then the BDS is one way that I can contribute uh, that really directly helps what's happening uh, supports, uh, you know, the freedom struggle within Palestine, while at the same time building alliances across across differences, which I think in many ways is what Israel and the U.S. is trying to avoid. And in my view, in many ways, that's what freedom is supposed to mean. Thank you, Sean, for, for meeting with us today. Uh, there's still so many questions that need to be answered. Um, if you'd like to get involved, please email the Inland Northwest Coalition for the Liberation of Palestine uh, to become a member um, or for inquiries. Our email address is info at inwclp.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram to find out more about upcoming events. Thank you for joining us today.